And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show. It is Friday, June 3rd. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. I am on the road. I'm in San Diego. So if things sound a little different, it's not you. It's not in your head. It's actually my microphone and a different space and, and all that. And plus, maybe I just sound even happier than usual because San Diego is a great place to be, Keith. Oh, my God. I love San Diego. I'm very jealous. You've got some great food recommendations for me. So I think I'm going to eat very well. It's hard to eat poorly in this city. It's a great place to be. Uh, Padres are on the road, though, so I'm a little bummed by that. That was the one the one thing that didn't go my way. And it's not like you have a, what I think Lake Elsinore is, which, is, which I like, but that's the nearest minor league team. It's not like you have a second option. It's, close. it's not like you're in New York City. It's like, oh, Mets aren't home, but I go see Brooklyn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's a little bit of a bummer, but still, I mean, you're in San Diego. I, I think I'll get to the beach and probably get to the brewery as a result of not going to the game. So yes, that seems that's, like that works. I feel like you should like Eno or Jay Jaffe. They could tell you the right breweries to go. That is definitely not. I like it, but it's not my department. Those guys are the experts when it comes to beer. I just know there's lots of great beer in San Diego. And as somebody who can generally have two beers and that has to be it for the night, um, I can't get through them all. That's It would take you several years to get through all the good beers yes. in San Diego at, uh, at two a night. Uh, on this episode, we've got some overreaction theater, one of our favorite segments on this Friday episode. We've got a rookie pitcher check-in, as a lot of rookies have actually held their own on the pitching side. We talked about position players last week, so if you missed last week's episode, you can definitely go back and give that a listen. Uh, but overreaction theater this week, I think there's been a lot of conversation about the Phillies, and part of me wishes we would have brought our friend Eric Carabell on for this, but I also <laughs> I don't think it's fun for Eric to talk about the Phillies. I think he does it with you because you guys have that that long-term friendship and I I feel mean when I talk Phillies with Eric. So at least you know he can opt into this conversation as a listener if he really wants to, but he doesn't have to endure this. He can skip through it in 12 minutes whatever he's got to do to avoid it. Uh, this is the Phillies team that it was flawed from the beginning, but I I thought you could make an argument back in the offseason. But there was a chance they would score enough runs that some of their flaws, their defense, and their bullpen might not matter that much, in part because they also have a good rotation. And the rotations mostly come through for the Phillies so far. Four out of their five starters seem fine. Now, I know if you look at surface stats, Zach Eflin has been hit a couple of times. The ERA doesn't look that good, but the underlying numbers seem very much normal for him. Mm -hmm. Top of the rotation, everybody's doing what they're supposed to do up there for the most part. It's really the... The offense relative to individual expectations. Hitters are fine, but they're not as good as they're supposed to be. And that kind of goes from everyone after Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos, Kyle Schwarber, Reese Hoskins, JT Realmuto. None of them are having 
horrible seasons, but they're all very close to average-type seasons right now, and that doesn't really work when you need to be an above-average team. I guess the first question I have for you as you look at this team is, is there anything actually wrong with those core bats that would give you some pause about their their ability to bounce back and, and turn things around, at least with the run production side of this team? Well, yes and no, right? The the big problem, you know, I'm not the only one who said this, but the big problem I thought I saw with the Phillies offseason strategy, one was that they were basically saying F defense, right? We just don't care. We're going to stack a full team of DHs and try to bludgeon everybody into submission. And you feel like that just doesn't really work historically. And I could understand if somebody wanted to make the counter argument, well, we have fewer balls hit into play. We shift and therefore maybe we can get away with less defensive versatility or fewer guys who can actually put a glove and find their way out to a proper position without a map. But the other secondary problem was that they did go after a bunch of guys who looked like they'd had uh, career years or you know, temporary peak years, whatever you want to call them, guys who were probably going to be worse in 2022 versus 2021 just by typical regression to the mean. And I think Castellanos and Schwarber both fit that. And both guys have regressed probably more than I would have forecasted. But I also thought both guys would be worse this year than they were last year. You know, Schwarber has been sort of, he's like having a Rob Deere season, right? It's walks power, strikeout, walks home or strikeouts. Very three true outcomes. 192 batting average, still 112 OPS plus. So an above average hitter overall, despite a 192 batting average, which of course is a little stat head inside me that's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> but, you know, this is, Schwarber is kind of a limited player. Castellanos, the power output we saw from him in Cincinnati was at least partially driven by the ballpark. We've seen a lot of guys go to Cincinnati. Tyler Naquin was somebody who just came up in my redraft last week. The the power he's showing is not real. It's that ballpark. You take him out of the ballpark, he's not going to head for this kind of power. And so you're left with Bryce Harper's having a Bryce Harper season, but he keeps missing time because it seems like at some point he's going to need Tommy John surgery. I mean, their second best hitter has been probably Odebel Herrera, who you know shouldn't be on the roster, wasn't supposed to be on the roster. Uh, after the domestic violence suspension, it looked like his time in Philadelphia was probably just over, as it kind of should have been. And yet, like I said, he's the by OPS plus at least he's the not, that's not the be all and end all, which is kind of what I have in front of me. Been the second most valuable hitter on the team. He's only played about half the games, but still, like that's I, I would view that as indicative of how much this offense has disappointed. Um, and I would also say, too, it's an, it, this is an older offense. Other than Bomb, everybody on this, uh, all of their um, regulars so far, and you know, guys like Garrett Stubbs and, and um, well, actually Garrett Stubbs isn't that young, but like Bryson Stott has played a bit. But of, their, of all their guys who've got, say, 100 plus PA, Bomb is the only one who's under 28. So, you know, they did invest in guys who were a little bit older and maybe a little bit more prone to the drop off. So, you know, this is high, we're doing hindsight stuff here, obviously. But I think these were concerns you could legitimately have had about the Phillies approach and roster coming into the season. And then now what we're getting is kind of like a worst case scenario, right? I think most people reasonably expected Schwarber and Castellanos to regress. They've regressed more than you would have expected. You know, is JT Realmuto really, is this what he's going to be like the rest of the season, the rest of his career? Eh, probably not, but there's a chance, right? He's a 31 year old catcher. The fair amount of mileage on him. 
catchers do, you know, historically at least, they drop off a little sooner. Could this be a look at what the future of this Phillies core is? Yeah, it could be. I'm not ready to go that far yet, but I think you could you could certainly be a you know Carabell style Phillies pessimist and say, yeah, this isn't it. This t- this core this didn't work. I think the follow up question is how do they fix it though? Given the age, given the current state of things, and my first thought is Dave Dombrowski has one style. He's all in mm-hmm. on veteran players. That's the style that works best for him when he is heading up a group for baseball operations. That's just the that's the build you're going to get. You want to win now? Maybe he's the kind of guy that can help you win now. I don't think Dave Dombrowski when I think we have to completely reshape what we're doing at the big league level because I don't think he's really no. had to do that very often during his time in those roles. So what's next for the Phillies? If this continues, I mean, there's a chance they can pull things back together and sure. at least get into the mix for a wild card. There's enough wild cards out there. There's enough talent on the roster. We're not saying yeah, they're we're buried. Not, it's June 2nd. Not even a third of the way this. through the season. Yeah. yeah, there's plenty of time to turn it around. But there is a... There is a bigger long-term question that's going to have to be answered by this front office. And I I see a lot of problems with the way they're currently structured. I don't see an easy path out of it. Uh, I guess how much of it can be solved by what they've got in their minor league system right now? Where do you sit on this farm system currently? Is, is there enough there to help patch some of the holes that are either currently there or just around the corner? No, I think not just around the corner. Like I think that this front office inherited a farm system that was pretty down for a bunch of reasons, right? They really did the, under Matt Clentak, they had a pretty poor draft record. And then they also had a lot of player development issues where if you look, this this franchise has not done well, especially developing position players, guys who come into the system with some promise and haven't really uh haven't come close to reaching that potential within the Philly system. So that's also, I think, reasonably concerning. Um, I know that the new front office recognizes this though, too, from talking to people who are there and from looking at the hires that they've made from outside the organization since Dombrowski and Sam Fult took over. I've known known Dave for a little while now. I I know Sam, but I think these are really smart guys. I think that Sam especially is a good counterweight to Dombrowski too, whereas Dave is like, Here's what I do. This is my template, and this is how I win. Whereas Sam comes from a bit more of a player development background. He's obviously younger, has come up through front offices and on the player development side in kind of, I mean, Dabrowski was in the game, but it's sort of a different era to develop as a person, as a front office person. So I think over the course of a couple of years, this is going to improve. Like I think the direction of the franchise as a whole, not just the major league team, is good. I think to conversations I've had with Phillies people about Matt Veerling, who's been up briefly this year. I thought I was hoping we'd see more of him. Yeah, Veerling is a good example of, they actually did a nice job on him in the draft. He hits the ball pretty hard. I think he's got a pretty good idea of the strike zone, but his number one problem coming to this year was he kind of hit everything into the ground. And it was, you know what, that's one of the things we think we can fix with players too. If you're just not, if you're, you know, if your launch angle isn't optimal for at least hitting line drives, that's something we think we can fix. It's easier to fix or address something like that than to say, teach a guy how to recognize a curveball or teach a guy ball strike recognition, which can be done, but it's much, much harder. And in the brief time we saw Vierling this year, he was actually getting a better angle on the ball. He was hitting the ball in the air a bit more often. 
do they take someone like him? Do they take someone like Bryson Stott and say, we're going to give you 250 plate appearances now, even though you're going to struggle and Stott has struggled so far in the big leagues. We're just going to live with it because on the other side of this, you know, we believe these are good prospects. Stott was their best prospect coming into the season. Veerling, I think I had fourth in the system. They were just bookending a couple of high school pitching drafts. McAble, who's in high A, Andrew Painter's been very good in low A. Those guys aren't going to impact the club this year. But you have a couple of these other guys, Stott, Veerling, Simon Mizziotti, who could help the big league club, but they have to be willing to live with some struggles in the short term. And I don't know if they would do that. I don't know if they can do that. I don't know if Dombrowski would be willing to do that, especially when you're already now Yes, it's just a third of the season, not even quite a third of the season, but you're seven games under 500. He might look at this and say, we don't have a lot of room for error. I can't give Bryson Stott another 150 at-bats where he's striking out a third of the time and wait for him to become the player we all pretty much think he's going to become. Stott has lots of fans in the industry. This is not the Phillies just saying they like this guy. I like this guy. Scouts from other clubs, especially those who saw him in Fall League last year. There was a lot of talk of, hey, this guy's really improved since we last saw him, you know, mostly before the pandemic. These are good prospects. It, you just have to be willing to live with them, to let them struggle. And it's a really hard thing to do when, when you're in the Philly situation. Honestly, when you're Dombrowski and Fold taking over from a club that was supposed to be contending for several years and didn't. And now at the same time, you're trying to improve the farm system, improve player development. But also, we have to win right now. We can't. This is not, hey, you got two years to fix this. It's not, no, we need you to win immediately, but also fix player development. I think it's probably the hardest thing to do in baseball when you take over an organization versus, you know, Mike Elias and company taking over in Baltimore. It was like, fix everything. You don't have to win for a couple of years, though. Right. It takes a lot of pressure off of everybody involved, right? Because there are calls for Joe Girardi to be replaced. There will always be calls mm-hmm. for hitting coaches to be replaced when an offense underperforms. We see this. Oh, we love that. Everywhere. Right. Fire someone. Just fire someone. Right. Like, Can't it's- fire the players. Fire the coach. Hey, sometimes the coach is the problem. I'm not defending Joe Girardi here. Joe Girardi made a couple of pretty bad tactical errors within the span of a three-game stretch this week. Where actually, if you go back to my tweets, I got a little bit confused. I confused his tactical errors, which one ended up costing them and which one didn't. But it was basically three straight games where he kind of made the same mistake over and over again and paid for it twice. And you know what? Joe Girardi is not helping. But I don't think firing Joe Girardi is going to turn this from a 22 and 29 team to essentially a 29 and 22 team. It ain't him. No. You could replace him, and maybe that makes everybody feel good, and maybe they just get that dead cat bounce that a lot of teams get when they fire a manager. I. I don't think he's very good. I don't think he's the problem. No, I, I don't think that's going to completely turn things around either. Playoff odds for the Phillies, depending on where you look, somewhere in the range of 15 to 20 percent for most mm-hmm. of those calculators right now. So, again, it's early June. It's not time to completely panic, but I think it's a justified entry for overreaction theater because mm-hmm. things are not going well for a team with high expectations. The other thing I wanted to throw at you for the Phillies, this was in Jason Stark's column that came out on Wednesday night. At the athletic, I didn't realize it was this bad, but I know it's a recurring story that Eno and I have talked a lot about throughout this season. The humidor being in all 30 parks, Philly was not a park that previously had a humidor, might be Mm -hmm. changing the way Citizens Bank Park plays. That ballpark is the most pitcher friendly park in baseball 
through the first two months of the season. And I think that was looking at the ESPN park factors in Jason's piece. I looked over at the baseball savant park factors. They had the exact same result. So maybe slightly different processes there, but that's not the way the park is supposed to play, or at least not the way the park has played historically. And I think that's probably taken very good offensive players and made them generally more average looking, at least on the surface. I have some questions. I do not like using park factors. One season park factors on their own are pretty problematic. This is a third of a season park factor. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm just saying I'm not buying this. And they did. They played a lot more home games in April than they played road games. Offense just tends to be lower in April, period. Um, That could be skewing it. It could be just some random chance to, I'm certainly not willing to say that Citizens Bank is a pitcher's park based on, um, you know, essentially 51 games of data. I would guess by the end of the season, this plays a lot closer to to neutral. Um, and the advice I would give to listeners too, if you're looking at this, you're seeing stuff, you're reading about it, teams that use park factors like to look at three-year park factors, if not longer, depending on the data, depending on what other changes there might be. But you need a lot more than a single season of data to draw a conclusion. And, and I think we're, you want know, to talk about overreaction theater, a 50-game park factor is any reaction is an overreaction. I agree with the, we can't call it a pitcher's park assessment here. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I think because of the humidor, it's something to watch. It's the kind of thing that goes, hmm, maybe it'll end up being league average by season's end. Like, I, I think that's more reasonable. That's what it's been the last couple of years. And I think the shape of how we get there, it might be more extreme in the early part of the season with the cooler weather because of the way the ball interacts with the humidor and as the weather changes it interacts differently it starts to fly more when we get to july and august it could be more extreme at both ends it could be more extreme when it's cool and more extreme on the hitter side once it's hot so some of the phillies looking like themselves might literally just come down to the weather which is uh mm-hmm. not ideal that's just not that's not the way i wanted things to go this season but hey they didn't ask me what i wanted this season to be like nobody asked me either Why don't they do that more often? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's get to the Mariners, another team that I think has a place in overreaction theater. 21-29 and 29 entering play on Thursday. They're 11 and a half back of the Astros. They're six games out of second behind the Angels. I think the Fangraphs playoff odds have them under 10% right now. We talked about Kelnick going back to AAA. You know, their catchers aren't hitting. Jesse Winker's still below average. Mitch Hanniger is hurt. 
I think their issues, though, are more on the pitching side, Keith. Robbie Ray struggling to maintain all those 2021 gains. And even their back-end guys, their innings eaters, Chris Flexen and Marco Gonzalez, just haven't been that good. They've been below replacement level so far. So it's supposed to be a step-forward year for the Mariners. They are much more watchable now than they were two seasons ago. We talked about Julio Rodriguez last week. Can they right their ship and at least get back into the conversation for the, for the wild card race in the second half of the season. And by the way, Julio Rodriguez and George Kirby, two rookies, two of the, I don't know, four, best, four or five best players on the roster too, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Right. Good job by the Mariners. It, you know, had, had a pretty bad farm system for a while now and they are, and it, there's more coming, but that's a pretty good start. Um, and for those guys to come to the majors and have success right away, as, as I was just saying with the Phillies, most guys don't. So good for them. Good for Seattle. Um, I think it's to their credit that they're that they're pro- producing players of this caliber again. Um, you know, last year they came within. I think they needed a win and some help on the final day to get into the postseason. So they weren't eliminated until the Yankees and Red Sox both won on the last day of the season. That was pretty awesome. The Mariners were also outscored on the season, and that was a pretty big sign that they were going to regress, kind of no matter what. I mean, they had to go a long, long way to actually be a 90, what did they win, 91, 90 or 91 last year, to actually be a 91-win team on paper, say. Which you don't actually have to be a 91-win team to get into the playoffs at this point. I think if you win like two-thirds of your games and you can get in for good behavior. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I don't know. I can't I can't follow the rules. So it's it, there's a lot of changes. But – yeah, I think this team is probably like a 500 team on paper. I think that's about what I predicted them to be. And that's probably what they'll be when we get to the end of the season. That may feel like it's not good enough if you were a Mariners fan, especially if you're one who kind of bought into the 90 plus wins last year and then are thinking, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to, you know, we're just going to build from there and build from there. And the young players are going to get there and that's going to boost us even further. Right? It doesn't always work that way. I think the Mariners' long term future is really bright. Would not surprise me at all if they ended up winning 79 games this year. And, but they, you know, break in Julio Rodriguez, they break in Kirby. Uh, you know, Matt Brash was up. He struggled. He will come back in some role. Still think he's a reliever, but it's great arm. Would like to see him back up. Would like to see Kalanick back up when they feel like he's ready, kind of both in terms of approach. And I think mentally they just decided he needed a break and that's fine. You know, JP Crawford is. Finally, at 27, right? He's been around forever, becoming the above average regular slash, you know, borderline star that a lot of folks, myself included, thought he'd be going way back to high school. Um, there's some places for improvement here, too. Like, Winker is not going to be like this all season. Like, there's way more upside in Winker. I don't, again, there's another guy who left Cincinnati and maybe some of the power went away. Wouldn't shock me. Also a super disciplined hitter and a guy who's just had ridiculously bad luck on balls in play so far this year. So I'm not actually worried about him. There are plenty of things I see on this roster. There's plenty of places I see where they will be better, but they're not going to be a 91 team. Like that would absolutely, I think they could play a slightly above 500 rate from now through the end of the season. And that probably puts them like on the borderline of a playoff race and leaves them just outside. That seems about right for where they are. Um, to do that over 100 games, could they go 60 and 40, um, which at that point would probably, I'd probably still leave them a little bit on the end, right? They'd be 81 and um, oh, they got a few more games than that left. My math is off. So you're talking about like an 84 win team at that pace at a 60% pace the rest of the season. 
probably puts them on a, on the borderline of the playoffs, but maybe doesn't quite get them in. That seems like a kind of a best case scenario. They win 60% of their games the rest of the season. Right. And then it comes down to how healthy is everybody else in the playoff race and yes. things that are out of their control. How healthy do they stay over the course of the season? I mean, there were a few things right. that have gone right. But aside from the young players, they seemingly were right in taking Eugenio Suarez back as part of that Winker trade. He's at least bounced yeah. back. It's still a low average, high strikeout rate profile, but he's doing damage the way he's supposed to when he's playing well. It wasn't just salary dump, right? Which is what it certainly seemed like at the time. Yeah, and the park factor difference, going back to the rolling three-year average point that you made earlier, Great American Ballpark, the Reds' home ballpark, has a 150 home run index based on the baseball mm-hmm. savant park factors over the last three seasons. T-Mobile Park, where the Mariners play their home games, is at 96. So Jesse Winker went from a place that boosts homers by 50% to a place that's slightly below league average. If you're wondering where the power went, a lot of it is the park. Now, I think there's also other factors in play. I think changing leagues, seeing a lot of new pitchers for the first time, just there's like a, it's a, there's a human adjustment factor to going to a new place that I think sometimes gets a little overlooked. How, how much that impacts each individual player obviously varies, but... When I look at the underlying numbers for Jesse Winker, there's still hard contact. There's not a K rate that's ballooned. There's nothing in the profile that causes great concern underlying underlying all of this, right? There's still drawing walks, no. not chasing pitches outside the zone. He's not pounding the ball into the ground more than he has ever in his career. He's actually hitting the ball on the ground less than ever. So there's some things that he's doing really well. To me, it's only a matter of time before Winker starts to look more like the guy we saw pre-2021. I think that new, that next level of power that he unlocked last year, some of that really was the ballpark. But if he gets back to hitting 270 with high teens, low 20s home run power and a good, with a good OBP, that'll be fine. They've got plenty mm-hmm. of other sources of offense. And he's one of the more, I think, one of the more high floor players that has struggled to this point in the season. So I wouldn't, wouldn't worry much about Winker if I were a, a Mariners fan. The Robbie Ray situation is is a bit yeah. interesting, though, because I remember you and I talked about him at the end of, of last season. And the main thing we were wondering about was the walk rate. And would yep. that hold? Did the control gains he showed in Toronto, were those largely sustainable? And I think at the time we said, yeah, they are. And that really hasn't been the problem. It's been a slight uptick from what we saw a year ago. Last season, Robbie Ray walked 7.7% of the batters he faced. This season, he's at 8.8%. That is still much better than that four-year stretch prior to last season when he had a double-digit walk rate every single season. So there's still improvement in that particular skill. The weird thing is the K rate is actually down from last year for Robbie Ray and down compared to all previous seasons other than the pandemic-shortened 2020 season. Home runs are still a bit of an issue. Uh, What do you make of this version of Robbie Ray sitting there with an ERA near five and and, and a whip that's quite a bit worse than what we saw last year when he pitched like an ace for the Blue Jays? I mean, the number one thing that worries me is his velocity appears to be way down this year. And he's down about two miles an hour on the fastball. And that's there's no good explanation for that. We'll see if it's it lasts. Does he pick up velocity over the course of the season? Is he closer to where he'd been the last couple of, especially last year? Last year his velocity was way up. So does he was that a blip? Is was that just a fluke? Is he suffering some some kind of fatigue? Is there some kind of underlying injury? Probably not terribly likely. Is this just age? 
if I'm Seattle, I'm concerned that I just paid for 2021 Robbie Ray and that guy's not coming back. Because yeah, I would expect all of these other indicators to be worse if he is, like I said, missing about two miles an hour. Um, he's much closer to where he was in like pre-pandemic than he was slightly above pre-pandemic, way down from where he was last year. Maybe that Robbie Ray is just gone. I don't want it. I obviously don't want that to be true, but that's far and away my biggest concern about him. And the number one thing I would want to try to figure out if I were Seattle, because you got a long-term investment in this guy. And if there's anything going on that's leading to that, you try to fix it. Now, if, even if that means him missing some time this season to try to keep him healthier for the next couple of seasons, because I do think I don't think their chances of contention rely entirely upon him in the next few years. They're certainly better with a healthy Robbie Ray in 23 and 24. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen the, the velo similar to the level that it's at right now, but it is a big drop from last season. I think it becomes more problematic with a pitcher like Robbie Ray because he's so dependent upon two pitches. It's so much mm-hmm. fastball and slider. Yep. You take a tick and a half, two ticks away from the fastball, and now he's throwing the slider more. He's throwing the slider more mm-hmm. than ever, 42% of the time. I don't, in yeah. a vacuum, have a problem with a guy throwing a slider that much. There's no reason to. No, it's fine. I just think when the fastball isn't as good as it was last year, you're probably looking at a guy that in the offseason needs to find a way to get a third pitch. In the past, I think he, he had a curveball. Yeah, and a changeup. He's done four changeups this year, according to Baseball Savant. That's like an accident. Yeah. Right? At that point, are those just mischaracterized fastballs or backup sliders or something? To throw four, four change-ups, what, every other start this year, he throws one change-up? It's like he's filling a quota or something. It's very strange. So I, I hope for his sake, that's the long-term adjustment that they can make. But on the positive side, I mean, Logan Gilbert has been really good. I think the step mm-hmm. forward he has taken since last year, another really encouraging sign among the reasons why the future is so bright in Seattle. Yes. I remember Gilbert's draft year. He had mono early in the spring and his velocity was down from where it had been the summer before on the Cape, but he showed everything else. He showed a four pitch mix, great delivery through a ton of strikes, super competitive. You were just saying, He's like 89-92. Are we willing to roll with that? And the Mariners believed, and they weren't the only ones, but the Mariners believed, we'll get him back. We'll get some strength. He lost some strength. He lost some muscle coming back maybe a little bit soon from the mono. We think there'll be more velocity. And by the next season, there was more velocity. And his stuff has actually continued to improve where I thought Logan Gilbert was a really good mid-rotation starter. He might be a number one starter. Like I think everything you're seeing from him this year is pretty legit. Um I think he could be at least a good number two starter for just about any team. And I hate to say this about any pitcher because they all get hurt. He seems like the kind of guy who'll be really durable, though. Mm -hmm. It is easy. He repeats it well. His size is good. Um, I just – like, I feel like I'm putting the whammy on him even though I don't believe in any of that stuff. But, I mean, like, he's also the guy you want to have stay healthy, right? He's the guy you're looking at. Like that, when teams take a college pitcher in the first round, in the middle of the first round, which is about where I think he went 20th or so, that's the guy they're hoping that they get, right? The guy who gets there fast you know, and who is, you know what you're getting. And then as you get him into player development too, you just get these little incremental improvements to the point where he gets to the big leagues in, it would have been, was it actually two years for him? Um from draft to big leagues and he gets there and gets you know a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And you've got like a really good above average starter um, you know, within a couple of years of drafting the guy. It's what part of why the, so much of the conversation, at least 
my conversations about the draft this year have been, where the hell are all the college pitchers? Oh, they're all hurt. But we want to take college pitchers. This industry loves to take college pitchers because we want Logan Gilbert. And there are, there, you know, every draft usually produces two or three guys like him who at least get to the majors fast and can be sort of towards the back of a rotation. He's that best case scenario of that guy. We're the Mariners too. They saw something in him. Some of it was, I think, just getting back to health and they've done a nice job continuing to develop him and cultivate more, honestly, just more power to his stuff, which has made everything play out. So with these two underperforming teams, the Phillies and the Mariners, if you had to bet one to find the postseason in 2022, who would you bet on? That's a really good question. I think the Phillies. I think the challenge for the Phillies in that division is uh, less than the challenge that the Mariners might face. I don't know. Both divisions have two teams that are just not very good. And I think that the Phillies' underlying roster is probably a little bit better. But the Mariners are going to get – this Mariners roster on August 1st is likely to look quite a bit different. I mean, they could, they have more guys coming out of the system. The Phillies aren't going to get, as we discussed, aren't going to get a ton of help from in, internally, whereas the Mariners might, you know, Hopefully, by that point, Kellenic is back up and they have multiple other pitching prospects in that system who could come up and impact the club. And I think Brash comes back up. He probably shouldn't be in the rotation. I think he could really help them in some kind of hybrid you know, long relief role. Um, I'll still take the Phillies, but I can also see the counter argument to say, hey, this Mariners team has more internal potential for improvement. Yeah, I think that's what stands out to me. I think I'd be on the, the Mariners' side. I don't think it's a, a landslide by any stretch. The the extra help coming in is was one factor. I think if I'm looking at the bottom of the NL East right now, the Nationals, who are very bad, uh, and the Marlins, I think those teams are mm-hmm. actually better than the A's, better than the Rangers as they're currently constructed. The top two teams, I think, are very comparable. You know, Mets and Braves versus Uh, Astros and Angels, I think that's a pretty Mm -hmm. even balance. But I think the bottom of the AL West is also just a little bit weaker than the NL East right now as well. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Well, it's not just Logan Gilbert pitching well. We're going to get to our rookie pitcher check-in. We'll talk about George Kirby for a moment. I really like what we're seeing so far from him, Keith. And you're talking about two guys that really could end up just being the one-two atop the Seattle rotation for a long time. And so far, Kirby having a bit more success than Gilbert did even in his first handful of starts in the big leagues. Although Gilbert actually pitched pretty well until about August of last year and then had a few bad starts late in the year that... Mm-hmm. That made the ratios go a little bit sideways, but excellent control so far. <laughs> George Kirby's got a 2.8% walk rate through 26 innings so far as a big leaguer. It's incredible control. 
Yes, that is well, kind of been his calling card that since I think since he was at Elon, certainly. And certainly that first, I think he didn't walk anybody in his very short pro debut. Um, it's funny, I may have told the story before. I saw Kirby's, I think his worst outing of his junior year in college where they went to Towson, baseball powerhouse. Um, and Towson just lit him up for 10 hits and in four innings and they were on his fastball. Um, and to his credit, then he switched to the curveball, started throwing because he could throw it for strikes as he does with all of his stuff. And he could drop a bunch of curveballs in for strikes and give up less hard contact. But by that point, sort of the damage was done. And it is interesting that despite the fact that he throws pretty hard, the fastball is not the not the main weapon for him. Like, he's actually had much better success on the changeup and the slider, um, which I think too, if you talk to folks on um, the R&D sides for teams, which I have, you know, just doing prospect work this winter, uh, the velocity on the, like he's hit hundred with the fastball and, but they'll say it's not his best pitch and it actually plays a little bit down from the velocity, but it's that he has such good command with two really good secondary pitches that make folks really like him. I thought coming into the season, he'd settle in as a good number two starter rather than a number one. I'm still holding to that, but I will say the fact that he is throwing so many strikes so far in the big leagues and pretty good strikes from what we've seen so far. That would be his ticket to being more than that, even with a fastball that I think gets squared up a little bit more than you'd like. I think the good thing about George Kirby, too, with that arsenal being so deep, he can throw the fastball less. He commands everything yes. really well. Don't throw the fastball 50 plus percent of the time. And yeah. that might be the way to get hitters off that pitch uh, just a little bit, too. So mm-hmm. could unlock some more strikeouts from George Kirby in the future if he goes to those Agreed. secondaries more often. Let's talk about Spencer Strider for a moment. He is Filthy. I've seen him a handful of times this year. <laughs> Do you have any sort of concerns that it's not going to work for him as a starter? Because initially this year, they were using him as more of a, a bulk reliever, and now he's getting an actual look in the Atlanta rotation. Can it be a, a long-term home for Spencer Strider? Yeah, I'd like to see you know, he really working in relief was basically fastball slider. Um, and he has a change up that he's barely used. It hasn't been very good. And I think that's probably the number one thing separating him from being uh, from being a starter versus being a, still a very valuable, say, multi-inning, you know, 90, 100 inning a year type of reliever, spot starter, however you actually want to define that role. Like, he's good. He's going to be good in some role. So rather than people say, well, you, you said Spencer Strider sucks whatever i didn't say that not <laughs> actually saying that however this guy's not got a ton of history of um not a ton of track record of health of holding up as a starter and i do think that you know i generally this is like the brady singer conversation too where you gotta have that third pitch um we'll see you know so far strider this year in the big leagues in a small sample has not had a ton of trouble with lefties, and he's actually faced more lefties than righties, as you would expect opposing managers to try to set that up. We'll see if that holds up. Maybe he doesn't really need a better change. Some occasionally you get a pitcher who can do this with two pitches. I would like to see that before buying into it fully. And actually, it would also be very interesting too to see if that happens and see if Clemson, um, yeah, Clemson, obviously very successful school in lots of different sports. Always felt like they didn't really know what to do with Strider. He didn't have a ton of success there. He also, um, 
you know, he'd been hurt and he, you know, what was his draft year was the pandemic year. It would be, um, I'd say this less, I don't mean to this to be so much of a criticism of Clemson and more a compliment of Atlanta scouting staff that they got this guy in the fourth round. And if they could turn that into a big league starter, that's pretty good because he really didn't show a lot in college to make you think he could definitely be a big league starter. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm looking at the usage and quickly reminded of how the White Sox deployed Michael Kopech last year. But I think the, mm. the key difference, mm-hmm. though, for me is that Kopech would occasionally throw a curveball, occasionally throw a changeup. Strider flashes a third pitch, but barely. I mean, we're talking about a, yeah. a changeup that he's used 5% of the time this year. And I think we'll know how confident he is in that pitch now that he's in this role where he's going to have to try and get through the lineup twice maybe even two and a half times on a consistent basis. I think he's got to start coming up in Colorado this weekend. So not exactly the best spot to evaluate what he's going to bring to the <laughs> table. Your eyes. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited about Spencer Strider. I'm not particularly excited about that matchup, but I could see it actually working out for him as a you know a high strikeout, mid-rotation caliber guy that maybe doesn't get as deep into starts as you'd like a frontline guy to go just because of some of these limitations. Uh, we've talked about Mackenzie Gore a lot off and on this season. So I don't think we have to get too deep into what he's done so far, but he currently leads all rookie pitchers in war. So just a great story so far to see him back on track after a couple of pretty underwhelming seasons trying to get up to the big leagues in the first place. I want to ask you about Aaron Ashby, though, another guy that gets deployed in this sort of uh, hybrid role. And, and because of the Freddie Peralta injury now is a lot more important as a, a member of the Brewers rotation delivery, definitely on the unique side. And it just seems like guys don't see him well. So unless there is a, a command or injury related concern in that delivery, I think it could actually work. Yeah, it's a, there's, you nailed it, right? I just a delivery is going to make it hard for him to throw a lot of strikes period and a lot of quality strikes on top of that. And he hasn't done a lot of that so far. Um, I don't blame the team for trying to start him. Obviously they're in a, this is a pretty bad spot, right? Peralta's going to be out for a long time. Woodruff is out. They have to call up Ethan small who also doesn't throw a ton of strikes. And doesn't have Ashby's pure stuff to get away with not throwing as many strikes. Like Ashby, Ashby at least between some deception and quality of stuff He's going to miss more bats. Small doesn't have that. Small needs to have better command to make better use of the stuff that he has. Maybe he gets there. But I look at both of these guys and say, but that's going to be a tough, tough transition. And Ashby, I think the more that folks are seeing him too, the more that they're realizing they can try to lay off some of the stuff. Um, the, the pit, it's not a problem with the pitches. It is delivery command and control that I think holds him back from like, I don't think I've ever read. He's never been a top 100 guy for me. I've never really confidently projected him as a starter. To me, it's all always been like 70, 30 that he ends up in a, as a reliever slash non-starter. I feel like that reliever starter dichotomy is probably going by the wayside. You know, pitchers are not a dimorphic species, right? We've got this third thing in between where not truly a reliever, not exactly a typical starter. Like, is he a, I think he's not a 30 times a year starter, but he could maybe start 10 times a year and throw a bunch of games out of the bullpen. You just sort of pick your spots with the opponents because, again, it's big stuff. It moves a ton, makes it harder for him to command it also. But in certain situations, it's going to be really valuable. And I, that's why, you know, to me, I think Ashby's got a, a better chance to have some short-term success for them as a starter over small. Although, ultimately, if this division gets tighter, they may end up wanting to look outside for another starter, especially if Peralta doesn't come back or Woodruff is out for much longer than we think. 
Yeah, the Woodruff injury is a high ankle sprain, so I think the current timetable is pointing toward mid-June, but we'll see if he's able to actually get close to that. But the Peralta situation looks like it's late August at the best-case scenario if everything goes well in his recovery. I get the sense they may want to get one more pitcher, uh, someone that you'd be comfortable with in the playoffs, not just depth for innings sake, but someone that you would throw out there and want to see in the game for five-plus innings in October. Uh, a check-in on Joe Ryan, I think, is warranted. I think we're both in the, let's just see more camp. And I don't know how long we can get away with that before we have to possibly admit that our expectations were unfairly low. But what is happening so far, the K rate is down from last year. The walk rate is up from last year. So far, he's kept the ball in the ballpark. If that holds, and I think that's pretty flimsy, if that holds, mm-hmm. then that I'll be ready to concede some sort of defeat about Joe Ryan. I think he's... Still more of a back-end sort of guy, kind of a, I don't know, Mike Fires in his peak years sort of pitcher, which is valuable to a big league team, but not some kind of hidden gem that the Twins managed to, to take from the Rays that they're going to turn into this sort of number two starter type. I don't, I don't think there's any ceiling quite like that with Joe Ryan. No, I'm not changing my view on him at all. Actually, I think these everything we see, we've seen from him so far, points to a really good back-end starter who's been pretty lucky, right? He's got a 234 Babbitt allowed this year. That's not going to last. That's just not sustainable. He's got a 5% home run per fly ball rate. This is not some extreme ground ball guy who's keeping the guy in the park, keeping the ball in the park. He's just been lucky and that's fine, right? It's not an insult against him, but you know the advanced metrics that we use, these ERA estimators, and some are better than others, um, But even FIP, which is the simplest, it's kind of a brute force approach, but does a pretty reasonable job, has him a full run higher than what he's actually allowed so far this year. And that doesn't even adjust for this this far lower than expected home run rate. I like Joe Ryan. I think he's going to pitch in the majors for a long time. Guys with his kind of deception and through throw a ton of strikes and he's got, I don't think he's ever really been hurt, right? He's been durable, certainly ever since he came onto my radar. He's going to have a hell of a career, but it's going to be more of the, you know, he has seasons where he's league average and he has seasons where he gets a little bit hard, hit a little bit harder than you'd expect. And he's a little below average and that's probably where he settles in. But we're, st- we're already starting to see some gradual regression towards the mean uh, versus what he did in five starts last year. And that's just going to continue. Let's talk about Ronzi Contreras for a moment. Finally back up for the Pirates. Wasn't really sure what they were doing with him for the first Six weeks or so of the season, he briefly debuted for them, went down to AAA Indianapolis. Maybe it was monitoring his innings, but they could have just done the Strider thing and used him as a reliever in the big leagues the entire time. He's back up now. Uh, This is a good mix. I mean, it's a fastball, slider, curveball, and he's one of those guys that picked up Velo after the Pirates acquired him from the Yankees, and that really changed everything in his profile. Yes, I like him a lot, and he needed, but I think I saw him... Oh my God. So three plus years ago before the trade. And yeah, it was, Hey, this guy could be pretty good. You're projecting some velocity. You're waiting for that velocity too, but that that would potentially make um, everything better. Not just the fastball, but it'd make the breaking stuff better too. Um, Really like him. I think he's got a chance to be mid rotation starter. He did have a little bit of an arm issue last year. He came back from it fine. Never needed as surgery. I wonder if that's kind of in the back of their minds so far in what they've done with him early this season is just, Hey, this guy did not get through last year healthy. Um, 
maybe we now, and he's not the biggest guy either. And so maybe we need to just take it easier on him. You're the pirates, right? You don't, who cares if he makes 28 starts this year? The goal is to get him built up. You can think 2023, 2024 with all of your guys. I'm sure pirates fans hate that, but that's probably the right way to manage your players, manage the players who are already in the system. I, I, Maybe there was a salary manipulation aspect to that. I'm just putting that aside. Just from a baseball perspective, there were reasons to take it easy on Contreras. I'm glad he's up. I would like to see him up for the rest of the year, regardless of how they use him. It's big stuff. Um, I think there's some touch and feel, some of the lesser things that he has to continue working on, especially because he has not pitched a lot with this quality of stuff, right? Like I said, when he was, you said this too, he picked up velocity after the Pirates got him. He does not have a lot of innings under his belt pitching as this kind of pitcher too. And so there is, for a lot of guys, a, an adjustment to be made when, oh, hey, I got better stuff now. Well, how do I deploy this? And I think he was still developing as a pitcher even before they got him. So there's probably, he's only 22. He doesn't have a lot of innings under his belt. I think there's a decent amount of upside here, but it's it could take some time. Let's talk about a couple rookie relievers. AJ Puck, someone that a lot of people have been interested in for a long time. It's just nice to see him finally healthy. It's been yes. such a, a long battle for him. Uh, 17 appearances so far this season, all out of the bullpen, 19 Ks and 21 innings, only five walks. I mean, I think that's the other part of this, too. Like you might be a little bit disappointed in the currently low strikeout rate for a high leverage reliever, but you should be pretty mm-hmm. excited that he's not walking the world and that he's just consistently taking the ball as one of the best relievers in this Oakland bullpen. Yes. And he's been pretty dominant in terms of just like really limiting good quality contact too. I mean, this is a guy who he should be a starter, except he just appears that he can't physically hold up under the role. Maybe that'll change. Maybe they'll give him another shot. But God, I remember seeing him multiple times in college. He always projected as a starter, potentially a pretty good starter. And then the injuries began to rack up on him and he just missed a ton of time. And I don't know what exactly what they're thinking. You know, to, I, the last time I spoke to anyone with the A's, it was more of uh, you know, just trying to keep this guy healthy. You're thinking very short term with a guy who's missed this much time. What can we do to keep him pitching, potentially use him in the majors, but also think about health for the long term? I don't know if they ever return him to the rotation. Be open to it. It seems like he can handle it. But also his history says that may be too much for him. And if he just ends up as a guy who pitches in the bullpen with stuff that's kind of too good, right? He has a starter's arsenal pitching in relief, but gets the kind of results you're hoping for, whether it's he misses more bats going forward or just continues to limit the quality of contact that he allows. Great. It's, it is a good outcome for him given what he's been through with two, I think, pretty significant arm injuries already. Yeah, I think they'd be pretty happy with that outcome. Um, the other rookie reliever I want to talk about was Johan Duran, another member of the Twins. He is getting the mm-hmm. strikeout rate that you want from an elite reliever. 37.2% yes. K rate so far. Uh, multi-inning multi uh, stints. We've seen a great walk rate from him so far as well. He's picked up a handful of saves because they mix and match uh, with the ninth inning role in Minnesota as well. I guess the, the bigger question here is with Duran, do you leave him as a reliever indefinitely, or do you still have some long-term hopes of him being utilized as a starter? Well, he missed basically all of last year with injury. Um, and he was always a bubble guy where, you know, in terms of that starter reliever dichotomy, it was, Hey, he's got the big fastball. He's actually throwing harder this year than I think he ever did before. I don't remember him. He's averaging 101. I'm looking at baseball savant. 
I actually knew he was throwing hard. I thought he was averaging about 99. I guess that point's an academic difference, right? He's throwing hard enough that hitters are probably just not seeing it very much. And he's got that splinker, the splitter sinker that he throws, um, which is also, as it turns out, really hard to hit. He could probably succeed in this role for a very long time. Um, and I like the fact that they've been kind of mixing and matching with late inning roles too, because the guy who missed all of last year, you don't want to start using him two, three days in a row if you don't absolutely have to. The the injury track record makes me think you just kind of leave him in this role, but I'm not going to argue if they want to try to start him maybe next year. Treat it as this is your year to just stay healthy through the season. We're going to really monitor your usage. You get and like you were saying with Contreras too. There's I think there's a real advantage to having in the big leagues, not just in terms of you have the most direct control over how he's used, but also you've got hands on him the days between he pitches too, and can be more, more frequent communication. How does this feel? How does this feel? You're testing things with him. You're controlling exactly how much he's throwing or what work he's doing between outings with a goal towards keeping him healthy. Maybe next year they try it. I'm I'm not opposed to it. He was always kind of a 50, 50, maybe 60, 40 reliever versus starter guy. But before going into last year, but before last year, then coming out of last year, when he did have the injury issue, you think eh, maybe he's just a reliever at this point. And if they want, if they just said, "Hey, we think this is the right role for him; it's going to keep him healthy," I'm not, not going to argue with that. I mean, at this point, when a guy's actually had some injury issues, and the team just says we're just leaving him in relief, how, I, I can't argue with that. I certainly don't know more than they do, and I could absolutely understand the trepidation for any pitcher who's missed a significant amount of time with an arm issue if the team says. We have found a role that works for him, and we believe we can keep him healthy there. And he's productive. It just works really well now that teams have discovered that there are numbers between one and five. You know, with Duran. Funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Duran's had six appearances this year where he's recorded more than three outs. And I think doing that gives you chances to either stretch someone out later to develop a third pitch. We've talked about this before. I, I, I think this adds so much flexibility to what you can do with a pitcher in the long run. And in terms of maximizing short-term value, I think you're ticking that box as well. It seems as much like a win-win in player development as you could actually have for a team that's trying to win right now, currently is atop the AL Central, and wants to get every ounce of production out of every corner of its roster. I mean, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, maybe we get to spring training 2023 and the Twins stretch him out as a starter and just... At that point, let's see what Duran brings. Let's see if we have a need, and then they can make a decision, you know, 10 months from now about his role for mm-hmm. next season. I think that's a totally reasonable way to go, and they might win a ton of games, and he might close 15 more of them uh, along the way because he's got that kind of stuff. That splinker is one of the nastiest pitches in the mm-hmm. league. It's uh, That's a pitching ninja regular if you're following Oh, it's that fun, account. It's right? so gross in the best How way. How often do you get a guy with a – I mean, it's not even just so much that it's a new pitch. It's unique. Mm-hmm. I don't know if another guy who throws one or has thrown one. I'm sure people have tried it, but his works. It's like the the new airbender. As excited as we were about the airbender when Devin yeah. Williams popped up a couple of years ago. Yep. That's where we're at with Duran right now. We have to go. If you'd like to leave us a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you're enjoying the show, you can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.